Thanks for joining us for another installment of Grasping Scripture. Glad you could join us today. Well, in today's study, we're going to be looking at the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. This is the last chapter of Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. And as we delve into this passage, we're going to see some things referring to the coming day of the Lord. And, you know, that's a hot topic back then. It's a hot topic now among Christian believers. And so we're going to delve into just a little bit of what Paul has to say here about it. Now, it doesn't get into deep waters, but there's some basic truths here that every believer needs to hear and to understand. But then there's also some reminders of how we should live, how we should behave, what it looks like to follow Christ with our lives. So I'm glad you could join me today as we delve into some of these themes and and really explore this passage. Now join me as we turn to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have blessed us with, for the opportunity to study your word, to dig into it, to, to seek to hear your voice speaking through your word. Lord, we know that you inspired Paul to write this so long ago for a specific group of believers. And and yet, Father, we know that you not only did that, you also were leading him to craft what would become scripture, what would become your word for us even today. And that although it had its origin at a point in time, your word still carries truth. Your word still speaks to us today and calls us to greater obedience in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice, eyes to see you at work, and a heart that desires to follow you. Lord, lead us today in our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll recall, as we were finishing up the fourth chapter, Paul was explaining to the church at Thessalonica about those that had fallen asleep, those that had died uh, within the congregation that knew Christ. And he explained about the return of the Lord and that that, that great day, that trumpet blast, the voice of the archangel, the, the dead in Christ rising first, we who are still left joining them in the air. I mean, just massive stuff. But now as we move into chapter five, Paul understands he needs to explain a little bit about this day of the Lord. And I, I referenced last time around, and I will continue to reference uh, the, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is one of my favorite books of scripture. If you told me I could only have one out of the 66, it would probably be Isaiah. But um, Isaiah phrased it as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, there's good reason for that. And those reasons are going to be laid out by Paul right here in the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians. You see, for believers, it is a great day. For those that don't know Christ, those that have rejected Christ, it is a terrible day. Let's look at this fifth chapter. He says, now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, 
Then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin. And there will be no escape. In other words, he's saying, let's not get hung up on this idea of, oh, we need Paul to tell us when it's going to happen. What it... I still get that today. Gosh, I was in college back in the late 80s. Yeah, I'm, I'm that old. Um, and I can remember this pamphlet that was going around in Christian circles, 88 Reasons Why Christ Would Return in September of 1988. And there was a specific date. I don't remember which day in September. Needless to say, um, it didn't happen. And so the author cleverly retooled his 88 reasons why Christ was going to return in September of 88 to 89 reasons why he was going to return in 89. Now, I didn't read his reasons because, you know, garbage. But I assume that the difference between the 88 and the 89 was his explanation of why he miscalculated the 88. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the point is we can easily get distracted from the mission. And hear me clearly on this. The mission for every believer is the same. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded. That is the mission for every church and every believer on the face of the planet. When we get hung up on, but when's Jesus coming back? Well, is this election or is is that that world event over there or is this calamity? Are these things all pointing to the end? Well, yeah, they're pointing to the end. Everything is pointing to the end. Paul describes even nature itself as groaning, longing for things to be set right. So the, the end is coming. You know, I don't want to sound like the weird-looking dude out on the street corner in the sandwich board, but the end is coming. When is it coming? I don't know. I know it's a good 2,000 years closer than it was when Paul wrote this. But Paul's whole point in the way he starts out chapter 5, because the church at Thessalonica was getting distracted by, well, when is the end going to be? He points out to him, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly. And he's referencing, of course, Jesus there, who talked about how even he didn't know that it would be when the Father says, you know, that that knowledge was, was limited to God the Father. Well, that kind of narrows it down that none of us with our thinking, oh, this means that the end is going to happen. That pretty much guarantees we're all going to be wrong. Or if we happen to call it right, it's not going to be because we knew anything. It's going to be because, you know, if you pick enough options, one of them may wind up being uh, coinciding with the accurate option. doesn't mean your choice was accurate. So don't get hung up on the when. I would encourage you as, as believers in Christ, don't even get hung up on the, the signs of the times. I know there's lots of books out there. There's lots of preachers out there that just love this stuff. Great. I get into it for entertainment value. 
kind of like I will listen to conspiracy theories occasionally because I find them entertaining, not because I think they're legit. So, he says, you know quite well, the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly. It'd be like a thief in the night. Uh, people are saying, you know, everything is peaceful and secure. In other words, when people aren't paying attention to God, when people are resting in the security of their own economic strength, military strength, and we see some echoes of that in the book of Revelation too, um, then they're set up keenly to be sideswiped. Is this going to come on like like labor pains? You know, you a, a woman knows she's pregnant, but you don't know when the labor pains are going to hit. And when they hit, they hit. Um, he's saying it's going to be like that. So we need to hear what Paul is saying there. Take it to heart. Don't get distracted by all this stuff. Is it real? Yes. Is it important? Yes. Is it something that should dominate our attention, our debate within church life? Or should our focus be on proclaiming the message of the gospel and living our lives for Christ? Well, I'll give you the easy answer there. Our focus is supposed to be on proclaiming the gospel and living our lives for Christ. Don't let the rest distract you. Well, as he goes on in verse 4, he says, But you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. And you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. Now, he doesn't mean surprised as in, you know, oh, you knew and, oh, yeah, it's going to be next Monday. And boom, there it is. And you're going, yeah, yeah, I, I knew that. He's not saying that. He's saying that when it does happen, it's not going to surprise you because you knew it was coming and you were prepared for it. But the world out there that does not know Christ as Savior and Lord is going to be blindsided by it. And they will not be prepared to face it. And that is a huge difference in people. He says, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief. For you are all children of the light and of the day, and we don't belong to the darkness and the night. Now, he's drawing that distinction of those that are uh, in the Lord, those that know the Lord and walk with him versus those that are apart from the Lord, is the, the light and dark. Uh, play there. Think Gospel of John and the play between darkness and light that John references heavily. He goes on in six. So be on your guard, not asleep like others or like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. So we are called as children of the light to be on our guard and to not sleep like others, to stay alert and be clear-headed. What's he mean by that? He means the lost world can go on and live like there is no God and, and like none of it matters. But we can't live that way. We have to have a clear head. We've got to have perspective. We have to be alert. We have to be self-controlled. We have to submit to God's Holy Spirit. And live in obedience. In verse 7, he goes on and says, Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, 
and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Now, he is speaking, I think, both literally and metaphorically there. No, you're not condemned to hell if you drink alcohol, okay? But we're told clearly in Scripture not to be drunk with wine, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Alcohol inhibits your decision-making. So if you're going to be clear-headed in listening to God and in following God, then you can't morally compromise. You cannot live without regard for the commands of God. You need to be making those decisions intentionally and not just letting stuff happen. Uh, You don't need to be asleep as in morally indifferent to God. You need to be awake. You need to be paying attention. See, we who are believers are called to live different. And the standard by which we live needs to be the standard God has set forth. And, well, the truth is, it's really not open for our disagreement. We don't determine what right and wrong is. God does. Our job is to live in accordance with what God says. Now, how does that spill out over to the rest of the world? Well, I'm not sure we've always done a good job in the way we let that spill out to the rest of the world. In fact, I'm pretty sure we haven't done a good job. But there's implications there for our obedience to Christ and how we interact with the world that does not know him. Anyway, let's get back to this passage. Picking up in verse 9, it says, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us. So that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Now, he's already commended the church at Thessalonica for the way they're encouraging each other, building each other up, the way they express love for one another. Now, he's he's encouraging them more on that. But he's saying, look, even this issue of the day of the Lord, And you want to know, when's it going to be? When's it going to happen? How soon is it? How far is it? What's it going to look like? Don't worry about that stuff. Be prepared. Be ready. Be right with God. And live in obedience to Him. And then know that the day of the Lord is coming. So when it comes, oh, it may be a surprise that it's happening today, but it's not going to be a surprise that it's happening, period. And you're going to be ready for it. Don't be like the lost world. And by the way, share the gospel with the lost world so that hopefully they won't be in the lost world anymore when that day comes. It's something we often forget in this whole discussion is that that day of the Lord comes for each of us. Whether it's the return of Christ or the day we take our last breath in this life, Every person who is alive on this planet or who has ever been alive on this planet faces that day when they encounter the Lord. 
the issue of being prepared doesn't change. Whether Christ returns, I keep picking on next Monday, it's just an arbitrary day. Whether Christ returns next Monday, or for me, I meet Christ face to face next Monday, if I'm prepared, if I am right with him, it doesn't matter. But if I don't know him, then either one of those options is horrendous. We need to be prepared and we need to understand that is what matters. That is what makes all the difference. And for those that are scared of the return of Christ, because let's face it, Hollywood inundates us with this idea of the last days, the the apocalypse, the, you know, whatever, and, and other groups as well, not just Hollywood. There are some Christian groups that like to use it as, you know, fear factor for Christians or something. But the truth is what Paul points out in verse 9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. We're safe. We are the redeemed. We get the great day of the Lord. We get spared from the terrible day of the Lord. That is what it is to know Christ, to have received salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That his anger, God's anger, his wrath is not poured out on us. It was poured out on Christ on the cross when he paid the price for our sin. So that it's not on our head anymore. Christ died for us. So that whether we're dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. And the truth is, that is what we should encourage each other and build each other up with. And I hope that many of our churches are just like this church at Thessalonica, and we can we can hear verse 11, and the last part's true for us as well, just as you are already doing. Although I'm suspicious, far too few of us are actually doing that already. But let's start. Now, 1 Thessalonians is a letter written by Paul to the church, and as such, it ends in the normal format of a Greco-Roman first century letter, and that is that it, it has some final exhortations, some final encouragements, ideas that he's presenting out, even commands, if you will, uh, to the, the Thessalonian believers, and then he rounds it out with a, a statement of blessing upon them. And... Um, so that's that's how we're rounding it out as we tackle this last part of the fifth chapter of First Thessalonians. He starts in in verse 12 to say, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. And live peacefully with each other. I can tell you, I have been in in the pastorate. I, I have been a full-time pastor for just over 20 years now. My view of that passage now is a bit different than it was, say, 30 years ago. And I want to point some things out that it says and some things that it doesn't say. 
Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's work. Does that just mean pastors? No, it doesn't. It means anyone who is called to a leadership role in the Lord's work. Now, elsewhere, we're reminded in Scripture and, and by Paul that you know you shouldn't necessarily pursue leadership roles in the Lord's work, that there's, there is another level of responsibility and accountability, if not among fellow believers, which there is among fellow believers, but with the Lord. Um, there's, yeah, there's some requirement there. And he's saying, look, if people take that on, honor them. Honor their work. Honor their work. They work hard among you, and they give spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. The work that they are doing deserves respect and love. And I will tell you from, from this side of the desk, if you will, um, or this side of the pulpit, that... I don't think anybody really understands the work of a pastor until they've done the work of a pastor. There are incredible joys and there are tremendous griefs. But it is a blessing to serve. It is this desire to administrate well, to to give spiritual guidance, to 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 see, uh, to use my words, to see the light come on in the life of a person, is just tremendous. So you know, be mindful of those. Whether it's a Sunday school teacher, a Bible study leader, someone who's mentoring and discipling you or a pastor, and there's a whole list I've not included in that. If I left you out, don't be offended. This is a sampling. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work. And then I find it interesting that next sentence they throw into that verse, and live peacefully with each other. Live peacefully with each other. I get the idea Paul's been the church before. Yeah. The way we live in relationship to each other and to our leaders within the body says volumes about our relationship and our obedience to Christ. We cannot ignore it. And so Paul is reminding them, even though he has uh, encouraged them and affirmed their, their love, their obedience, their cooperation, their, here he's still pointing out, you know, do this, honor them, and, and live peacefully with each other. He goes on in 14, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. What do you mean lazy? Those who are not diligent in their service of Christ, those that want to sit back and go, no, nah, I'm good with God and not, uh, is, this isn't just lazy as in don't want to get off the rear end and do something. This is, this also has a spiritual component to it. So we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid. So if people want to shrink back, they don't want to confront people. They don't want to, they don't want to 
proclaim the gospel because I understand this is a congregation that's living under persecution. It's tough. And some are wanting to, to shy back and just stay out of it. Encourage those that are timid. So what do we do with timid people? We encourage them. What do we do with those that are lazy? We warn them. And then what? Take tender care of those who are weak. You see, in the Greek society they lived in, the weak were considered worthless. You weren't supposed to take care of them. You weren't supposed to waste any effort or attention on them. They need to suck it up and get going. And Paul's saying, no, in the family of faith, it's different than that. We're going to take the timid folks and we're going to encourage them. We're going to take those that are lazy and we're going to admonish them. We're going to warn them about where that leads. Um, We're going to take those that are weak and we are going to tenderly care for them. And then the last one, which I know a lot of people would prefer, he just would have left off. Be patient. Be patient with everyone. Yeah. We have to give grace. We have to, because we have received grace. Not because anybody deserves it, because nobody does. But if we know the love of God and we love God, we are going to have to show that love to others. And showing that love to others means we're going to give grace. We're going to build up. We're going to encourage. We are going to be patient with everyone. Why did he have to say everyone? Couldn't he have said with most people, with everybody except and given a short list? No. Be patient with everyone. And he goes on in 15. See that no one pays back evil for evil. Here again, they were being persecuted. They were experiencing evil perpetrated upon them for no other reason than that they claimed the name of Christ. And their world, again, the Greco-Roman world, uh, Roman philosopher Seneca said that, look, it was entirely appropriate, in fact, necessary when you had been uh, set upon within society, when you had been mistreated, that you must get revenge to socially reestablish your honor. You know, that's the world they lived in. Revenge was fair. Revenge was what you were supposed to do. And here Paul weighs in and says, see to it that no one pays back evil for evil. Well, they had evil being paid on them. And he's saying, now the response to that is not evil back. But always try to do good to each other. Each other means within the body of Christ. And to all people. Yeah. Do good to each other. Be good to each other within the body of Christ, but also to everybody else. Everybody else meant all those people that are persecuting you. I Paul's echo, echoing Jesus here. You know, what? how do you treat your enemies? Love them. But what if they treat you horribly? Love them. Well, what if they take all your stuff and beat you up? Love them. What if they throw you in jail? Love them. What if they kill your family? Love them. 
Nowhere in here does he say it's easy. But he says we must do it. He goes on in 16 with some more encouragements, and these are just little bullets, if you will. He says, always be joyful. Never stop praying. Well, joyful. Again, there's a difference there between joy and, you know, just kind of goofy happy all the time. There needs to be an abiding joy in the life of a believer because you know where your foundation lies. Rooted in Christ. What about never stop praying? We are to always be praying. I mean, that obviously doesn't work if you do the bow your head, close your eyes bit, but always in the back of our mind, have a prayer rolling. What's he mean by that? Well, he's not meaning pray every minute of every day. What he is meaning there pretty evidently is don't give up on prayer. Don't pray for a period of time and they go, oh, that didn't work. I'm not going to do that anymore. Don't give up on prayer, but stay at it. Stay committed in that process of prayer, in that aspect of, of a growing relationship with Christ. Keep at it with prayer. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. There's a man that knows what he's talking about. Go back and read Philippians. It makes it pretty clear. In 19, he says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies. Now, he doesn't say just, you know, go after every prophecy you hear. But God spoke to the church through his Holy Spirit in the lives of believers, giving them many times prophetic words for the building up of the church. I'll send you over to 1 Corinthians to do some study on that. And he's saying, don't stifle the Holy Spirit. You know, oh, no, 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 we don't want the Holy Spirit here. You know, that, that's not a good course of action, okay? And don't scoff at prophecies. Just because it's a prophecy doesn't mean it's garbage. Don't scoff at it. But in verse 21, he gives a very astute guideline. But test everything that is said. Test it. How do we test it? Does it line up with God's word? Does it line up with scripture? And at this point, when Paul doesn't use the word scripture here, but elsewhere he does. When Paul talks about scripture over in Timothy, he is talking about not just the Old Testament, but he is also talking about those letters and writings that are circulating among the church in this time that are seen as authoritative, as God's word, as inspired by God for the building up and edification of the believers. And so when Paul says, test everything, he's saying, look, if somebody stands up and says, God has given me this prophecy, the Lord says this, and it doesn't fit with the rest of it, then it's not a legitimate prophecy. There was another aspect to that also. What did the life of the one making the prophecy look like? Did they fit in with what God had said? Or were they living 
like they didn't know the Lord, but suddenly they've got this word from the Lord for you. And that should obviously cause concern. So, but God can speak through anybody. Ah. The early church in the, the Didache, which is one of those, you know, Oh, if you want to sensationalize it, it's one of those lost books. It's one of the books that didn't make it into the canon. And the reason is it is a collection of writings by the apostles and some of those that came after the apostles. It's, if you will, it is a a manual on how to do church life, but it is not scripture. It is not uh, directly written from the apostles. It's not particularly divinely inspired although I think it was probably guided by God, it's, it doesn't rise to the level of being scripture, but it was kind of the church manual for the early church. Well, in the Didache, it talks about gauging the character of those that utter prophecies. And in, in the Didache, it says, not everyone who speaks about spiritual things is a prophet but only if the person's conduct is like the Lord. So if their life doesn't jive with the Lord, then their message won't be from the Lord. And that's a that's a big thing. It's got to line up with what the Lord has already revealed and already said, but also the life of the one speaking. The life of the one speaking needs to be like the Lord. That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? But it means that just because somebody shows up and says, I have this prophecy from God, that we go with it. We must test everything that is said. After we've tested it, then going on with the verse, he says, hold on to what is good. Implication, jettison everything that's not. If it fails the test, ditch it and forget it. Stay away. Verse 22, stay away from every kind of evil. And that kind of finishes those bullet points that he's throwing out there, that last minute guidance to this church. Remember, this is a church that didn't have a lot of depth. Uh, They weren't discipled more than at best a few months. And then they had been left on their own under persecution because Paul and his fellow pastors couldn't get back there to, to disciple and to minister to them. And they had been holding their own, but there were some gaps. And here he's trying to fill in some of those gaps, as he states earlier in this letter. And and now finishing out this chapter with the with the final prayer and, and greeting, the closing greeting, if you will, uh, for the church. And again, following the standard form of a letter in this day and age. Uh, in which he wrote this. He says in verse 23, Now may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. God will make this happen, for he who calls you is faithful. Now there's a lot in there. Understand this this reference to the the spirit, the soul, and the body. Uh, there's actually a couple things going on there. He's speaking to a Greek audience, and for the Greeks, those would have been the the different aspects of what makes a person. 
Uh, for the Jew, those all would have been kind of a blurred together because they took more of a holistic approach. Not that you had a spirit and you had a soul and you had a body, which is how the Greeks would have seen it. But the Jews would have seen it more, again, more holistic that that spirit, soul, and body were all talking about you. Uh, just more collective idea. Anyway, be that as it may, it's, it's everything that makes you who you are. It is you every part of you. He's praying, may the God of peace make you holy in every way, and may may you, all of you, everything that makes you you, be kept blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. That's a, a great prayer for them, for any of us. But then in verse 24, God will make this happen. He's expressing this confidence that God's going to make this happen. For he who calls you is faithful. Not because you're so great, not because you do the right things God is going to do this, but because he who calls you, which is God, is faithful. He's faithful. So again, our trust is not placed on what we do to be right with God. Our trust is placed in who God is. His faithfulness, his love, his grace not our accomplishment. Well, in verse 25, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, pray for us. Your reminder, hey, we need your prayers. We've been praying for you, but we need your prayers. Verse 26, greet all the brothers and sisters with Christian love. That's the New Living Translation. Other English translations, greet them with a holy kiss. Um, you know, I realize there's people in different cultures and, and well, around the world that listen to this podcast so I'll, I'll just be blunt with it you know here in in south central texas we don't tend to greet each other with a holy kiss uh, maybe a holy handshake occasionally a hug but you know it's just not our cultural norm to express that way well in the first century world it was absolutely the cultural norm if you met someone who was a a family member or a friend, then you would kiss them on the cheek or kiss them on the forehead as a sign of, of infection, uh, of infection. Wow. That pandemic speak slipping in there, a sign of affection. There we go. And you know, it was just a, a way of greeting and saying, you know, Hey, we're, we're in this and I care about you. And what Paul is saying is we as believers need to treat each other that way. That if we are in the family of Christ, we need to act like we're family. And if that's how a secular family would behave in greeting each other and expressing care and love for each other, then, you know, shouldn't that be reflected within the church among believers? So greet each other with Christian love. Let it show. Don't make it look like we just barely tolerate each other. Show the world we love each other. Then the last two verses. I command you in the name of the Lord. Now that's a rarity. Paul very rarely commands any of the early churches or early believers to do things. But here he says, I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. He's saying, look, this is a circular letter. Get this in there. Read it out loud in worship. Be sure everybody hears it. It is for everyone, not a select few. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. 
May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What a closing. And let's close today's podcast in just the same way. I pray that may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.